I've dealt with a deep and lingering depression most of my life. It has stopped me from taking opportunities and it has stopped me from being prepared for other opportunities in my life. A few years ago, I had the opportunity to speak at a church. And as the story goes, my depression was something that was re- I was wrestling with in that moment. And I showed up not as prepared as I should have been or could have been. Now, the message went along fine. It wasn't the best and it wasn't the worst. But the reason I bring that story up is I remember specifically calling what happened during my preparation an attack from the devil. Now, this isn't language I normally use. I don't tend to go around blaming the devil when things happen. But in reflecting on why in that moment I chose those words, I realized it was because it was easier to blame the devil than to get people to understand that we live in a world where depression is a real thing. If I had stood there and told people that this week, I was dealing with depression, it would have signaled to this group of people that maybe I was unstable and not worth listening to. But when I said that it was an attack of the enemy, it gave them cause to lean in. God must really have something to say to us today if the devil is trying to stop it. I wasn't trying to be dishonest, and I wasn't consciously trying to play to the crowd, but subconsciously, my body picked up on the energy that we need someone beyond us to blame. Or when it comes to things that just are, we also need someone to blame. The reality is, we live in a world where depression and mental health issues are real things. And those who wrestle with them are not demonically possessed or being attacked by the devil. I want to add that I'm not trying to make a hard, fast rule. I also believe that we live in a world where forces beyond my understanding are at work. And both of these things can be true. But we live in a world so maladjusted to suffering that we almost always need someone or something else to blame. Instead of just being able to hold the tension that we live in a world where suffering exists and often exists because we collectively are the cause of it. There are many in the tradition that I grew up in that would see someone in the throes of a mental health crisis and say something akin to the devil has gotten a hold of them. These same people would see a homeless person suffering and ask what sin had this homeless person committed that they were now homeless. Was it drug addiction? Was it gambling? Was it something else? They must have had a cause for their homelessness. That was their fault. It is easier to blame the devil, and if not the devil, the person suffering for the suffering. Instead of asking the real questions, the hard questions, the impossible questions, the uncomfortable questions. Job, the story we are exploring today, is the story of a man who is befallen by evil and is made to suffer. And in the telling of this story, it forces us to reckon with the real questions, the hard questions, the impossible questions, the uncomfortable questions. The story starts off as describing Job as the ideal human being in a worldview and perspective from which this story emerges. Basically, Job is being called Brad Pitt, Oprah, LeBron James, rolled into one person with a sprinkle of Alicia Keys for good measure. All is right in the world. The sun is shining. His family is flourishing, and he is healthy 
and wealthy. In the next scene of the story, the angels all the angels uh, in the next scene of the story, angels come before God, and with them is a character who is called the Satan, which is a job title, which means the accuser. God and the accuser get into a conversation where the accuser incites God to allow Job's whole world to be blown to smithereens, and with the exception that nothing itself can befall the person of Job. And before you can call me a heretic and tune me out, God himself says, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Like this is part of the story. This is part of the text. So Job's children die. His wealth is Bernie Madoff, and he is left destitute and alone. At this point, Job got up, tore his robe, shaved his head, then fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all of this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. The sin in this story would be to accuse God of wrongdoing. The sin in this story would be to assume the role of the Satan against God. So when Job doesn't let God down, the Satan returns. And the Satan gets into the same conversation with God as he got into last time. With the exception of death, everything is now fair game in ruining Job's world. Job is now afflicted with something that sounds a lot like the bubonic plague. And Job's wife sees him suffering and even swings by to tell him, just literally decompose. As in, lose your composure, curse God, and die. Then along comes Job's friends, well-meaning and wanting to comfort Job. But they could not accept that Job was not responsible for the evil that befell him. They kept asking him, what did he do that all this would happen to him? They refused to believe Job when Job told them the truth, when he told them he did nothing wrong. And at this point, his good religious friends failed Job miserably. And at this point, I cannot help but see the parallels between white Christians and Job's friends. They refuse to see, accept, or believe people of color when they tell them they are suffering. If they do not see it, they ask like Job's friends, what did you do to cause this suffering? And if they do see it, they still ask the same question. And then they say something, well, if only you did, or if you just did this, and all the advice in the world, and everything but the decency to believe the person that is suffering. Because to believe them would, to have, would be to have to ask the real, hard, and impossible, and uncomfortable questions. Anyone who has even been remotely paying attention this week, has heard about the bodies of the 215 indigenous little ones that were found in an unmarked grave on the property of the Kamloops Residential School. It is a tragedy of unspeakable proportions, not because we didn't know, not because we didn't believe this type of thing was possible, but because we did know and most of us said nothing, but because we did see it and most of us pretended not to in order not to ripple the waters. 
We as a society chose not to believe our indigenous kinfolk when they told us of their suffering. Because to believe them would be to have to ask the real, the hard, the impossible, and the uncomfortable questions of ourselves. Our indigenous brothers and sisters have been telling us that this happened. They have been fighting for belief. And they have been fighting for belief to be transformed into action. It forces us to ask the question, how could this happen? It makes us grapple with the question of evil in real and tangible ways. It is not just a theory to be debated, but we see it in these bodies of these little ones whose lives were cut short by villainy and evil. And the answer to those questions are just as uncomfortable as the questions I ask when I'm reading the story of Job. Because the answers mean that we are all complicit in what happened. We have lived in a society that did not believe. We have lived in a society that chose not to see. And we have lived in a society that when it saw it, chose to ignore. A society that just sat beside and denied like Job's friends. My indigenous friends are heartbroken at this discovery, not because a single one of them were surprised or shocked. Mostly feel like finally, you cannot call us liars anymore. As I prepared for this talk today, I could not help but see the parallels between the story of Job and the story of our indigenous kinfolk. We live in a society that vilifies the accuser, that scorns the whistleblower, that seeks to punish anyone who reveals our own evil to us. We silence those who tell us of our complicity in their suffering. We make the accuser the scapegoat, the one who takes the blame. In this story, we have many Satans that show up. We have the angel that is called by the title of Satan in the beginning of the story that reveals God's own insecurity that maybe Job just isn't as faithful as God thinks he is. We have Job's wife who reveals to Job the source of his suffering in this story to be God. We have Job's friends who show up and accuse Job of being the cause of his own suffering. And last, at the end of the story, we have Job, who finally and rightfully accuses God of his suffering, to which God has no answer. God refuses to hear Job's charges or see Job's revelation. Instead, God goes on the infamous tirade, where were you when I did and did and this I did, never once acknowledging or apologizing for causing Job great suffering. In our theology, we have made a person out of the title of Satan. We have made that person the scapegoat for our sins and the scapegoat for the hard and impossible questions we refuse to ask God. We quote verses like John 10, 10, the thief comes only to kill, steal, and destroy. And 1 Peter 5, 8, your enemy, the accuser, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And we fail to take an account, into account that both of these verses are referring to predatory religious and political systems that have harmed God's children. In the tradition I grew up in, we have a very robust theology of the devil. Like in the opening write-up for the series said, we blamed the devil for everything. It allowed us to skirt the blame and kept us from asking the hard and impossible and uncomfortable questions of God and ourselves. The story of Job forces us to reckon with our bad theology. The story of Job makes me ask 
Why is it a sin to accuse God? Why do we make scapegoats out of revealers? Why do we so often refuse to believe those who are suffering? The answers are uncomfortable and damning.